The Velvet Hammer, an inside look at trial lawyer life with Karen Kohler. Real life stories about fighting the good fight. I may exude too much self-confidence. I may seem too bold sometimes, but I think that my willingness and ability to laugh at myself makes up for that. I am not a quote unquote, uh, naturally humble person with respect to what I do. I think I'm pretty humble with how I live and what I feel for my family and my friends and those around me. I, I'm very, I feel very humble. I guess not even humble is not the word. I just feel right there with everyone. I don't feel any different. I don't feel above or below. I just feel right there. And humility is a kind of a godly word, I guess I should say, that gets attributed to um, many rock star trial lawyers. Oh my gosh, they're so amazing and they're so humble. Uh, Why don't we say they appear so humble? It's hard to be a trial lawyer and be truly humble. It's hard because you have to have enough of an ego not to be crushed if you lose. It's just stating the facts here, folks. Well, one of the qualities I find to help me uh, show, for example, a jury that I am not above them, because I really don't think I am. I don't feel above a jury. I feel like I'm just right there with them. I don't think that that's quote unquote humility. I just think that I don't feel like I'm better than honestly, really than anybody else. Um, and that quality is the ability to laugh at oneself. When you can't laugh at yourself, it makes people scared of offending you or worried that they may offend you or just, I don't know, this kind of a, a feeling of unpositivity, I guess. Uh, when a person does something, it is really silly, but nobody dares to laugh about it. it. It's uncomfortable. In my case, I'm totally fine with laughing about myself. Uh, I do it all the time because I'm just a ridiculous person on so many levels because I'm a human being and we all are. And if I ever forget that, my children are the very first to remind me or currently in the case of my grandson, who's two, that's really easy too. One of the, I guess, things that is attached to that ability to laugh at oneself is how you deal with being embarrassed. And embarrassment is, of course, a dreaded taboo subject that we don't like to talk about because it's embarrassing. We develop uh, a sense of embarrassment. Oh my gosh, such an early age. My grandson, age two and a half, If he does something that he is embarrassed about, you can already tell. He goes and hides and covers his face. I mean, it's instinctual to feel embarrassed. It starts at a very young age. I don't know how young, but certainly my two-and-a-half-year-old little grandson has been feeling that way for at least since he's been two. I've noticed it. Uh, Well, let's look at embarrassment and what better way to look at it than look at it through the eyes of 
my family growing up with my mother. She's been a lot on my mind because this is the month that she passed away. Well, to survive my mother, uh, we had to get over our embarrassment. Yet that was easier said than done. She embarrassed us constantly, all the time. If she didn't embarrass us uh, because of what she did to us, she embarrassed us just because who she was. For example, my hair was curly. She thought my hair was horrible. She had no idea what to do with it, being Chinese. And for the first almost 10 years of my life, she clipped it to less than an inch all the way around. That way it stayed like a nice little helmet against my head. I have memories of running around the house with my mom chasing me with scissors. I remember one time my dad caught me and just sternly told me that I needed to just give up and let her cut my hair. Recently, I came across a photo of the whole family. We were out at a river. All of us had the same exact haircut. Bangs that started at the very, very top of our hairline that came down like a square uh, our faces were, were framed in squares and then straight across the bottom of our hair. That's when she let me grow it longer. It was like a bush that had been pruned with a square cut out of it for the face. We had identical haircuts. This, of course, was embarrassing. Embarrassing that your mother is cutting your hair. Embarrassing that you knew why you didn't want your mother to cut your hair because you'd have to go to school looking like that. But there were so many other stories. We would be out anywhere, let's say a school performance. This is from the time I was a little kid until the time I was in high school. I can remember this. If another child was acting up, let's say a three-year-old or four-year-old or probably an infant, uh, if they were being loud and making a goo-goo-ga-ga sound during, for example, one of our musical concerts, mom would get up and tell them to be quiet. She wouldn't tell the parents to make the kids be quiet. She would go up to the child, glare at them with her, with, with just her like mean look and say, shh, like that. It was so embarrassing. She did it all the time. Sometimes parents would get mad at her and all we could do was just cringe wherever we were watching her do it. There was no stopping mom when she wanted to get something done. Another endearing trait, going out to any meal with mom. We knew we were going to be embarrassed. First of all, no food was good enough for her. Rare occasions, the waitress or waiter would come by and say, how's your meal? And she would sniff up her nose and scrunch her little eyebrows and shake her head. That's on a good day. She'd just go, <laughs> typically she'd say too cold. Um, she'd always send food back. She'd shake her head, sniff her, you know, it wasn't bad. I said, but that's a compliment for mom. It wasn't terrible. It wasn't bad. That was a compliment. We always had that happen to us when we would go out to eat with mom. Or let's say a friend wanted to come over. I can remember my neighbor, let's just call her Jane Doe, came over. And I think we were probably 13 at the time. Jane Doe came over to my house to come play and mom opened the door, looked her up and down and said, and I will never forget this. Oh, well, you haven't grown much there, but don't worry. Eventually they'll grow. Talking about her bosom. 
I was so mortified and Jane never wanted to come to my house again, even though she lived about 10 feet away. Mom was like that. She just would say whatever she felt, whether you wanted to hear it or not. And the rest of us would just sit there cringing with embarrassment. Now you would think, gosh, when you were exposed to so much embarrassment over time, maybe you became immune to it. But no, we really didn't. It was just always cringeworthy. We just wanted to vanish. We wanted to be swallowed up. We wanted to not be there. It was always awful. We never knew how to apologize enough. And pretty much we didn't even try. We just would, would, would just run away. Well, another issue. I, this is sensitive, very sensitive. My mother farted all the time. <laughs> she did. She just loved to fart. And she would say that it was a natural bodily function. She would also say that they didn't smell, which honestly they didn't. I don't know how that's physically possible, but the woman can make the loudest noises and it wouldn't smell. It was really ridiculous. Maybe like once every thousand times because of this power of hers and the extraordinary talent involved in not having them smell. Um, it was bad enough that she did them in the house or when friends were around, but she never limited herself to that. It didn't matter where she was out in public. If they were going to come, she's going to let it rip because quote unquote, it's a natural bodily function. Thanks mom for that. If you have never been in public with a Chinese woman, five foot two, 120 pounds, who farts like, I don't even know, a bull moose that loud. It would just be percuss around wherever we were. If you've never been in that situation, let me tell you, embarrassing. All of us, we would try to like get away from her so that we wouldn't have, people wouldn't know that we were her children uh, and, and we wouldn't be shamed by her farting, but it never worked. People could always tell we were a gaggle of kids. Ah, <sighs> when you are exposed to a lot of embarrassment as a child, I guess you can just become extra shy. Uh, but for some reason, all of that embarrassment, I would say for most of us, we survived it. And I really think that we survived it because there were five of us kids. Now, my brother and I were eight years apart. So for a while there, there was this big faction of the little kids and the big, big kids, me and Debbie, but there was enough of us that we could gang together and there was safety in numbers and we could overcome the stigmatization of being embarrassed or ashamed by mom. We could face it down because there was a gaggle of color kids. Well, how did this work positively? Hmm, good question. I think I've told you this story before, but when I think I was eight, and Debbie was seven, we were with um, one of my best friends at the time, Liz, walking to 7-Eleven, and a guy in his house uh, pulled out his wiener and started waving it around. Liz, of course, saw it first because she sees everything. Debbie then saw it and I then saw it. And we ran screaming up the hill. When mom heard about it, because of course we told her, because of course 
I was never ashamed really of anything because I was ashamed of everything that my mom did. So there was nothing that she could do that would be that I thought there was nothing that that would ever surprise her. I wasn't ashamed of the guy doing that. I just wanted to tell her because it was like gross. We were screaming up the hill, running, get up to the hill. We tell my mom. A normal mom might have comforted us and, you know, talked quietly and explained everything about bad men. But no, mom immediately drove, put us in the car, drove us down the hill, asked us to point it out and took us to the police station to file a report. That kind of embracing of, of what could have been a very embarrassing moment was empowering. And I think that that is the single biggest lesson that I have learned or gotten out of being constantly embarrassed and ashamed by my mom's bold, unconventional, immodest, non-contrite ever behavior. She never second guessed herself. She never thought, man, I shouldn't have scolded that little child that wasn't even mine. Or she, she never thought, well, I'm always late. I'm, you know, I wish I wasn't late so that my family didn't always have to walk in 20, 30 minutes late to every single event ever in the history of the world. She didn't ever apologize and she never seemed recalcitrant, ever. I can't even, in my wildest memories, remember her saying she was sorry for embarrassing us or putting us in a situation that was extremely embarrassing. Instead, what she would do is laugh. She would cackle. She thought it was funny. She thought it was hilarious. My mom was all about getting the reaction and we were all about suffering that reaction. And that combination made us strong. It didn't just happen when we were kids. When I was older, uh, I, I, went, I, I lived above her office, which had an apartment in it during law school. And John, who had become my husband, came to pick me up for our first date. And mom was at the office. I was upstairs. She was up there with me. He came in, no, she was downstairs. He came in and I could hear her talking to him. And she said, oh, you're that guy. And then she said all these famous words. You don't look as dumb as you sounded on the phone. Ha, ha, ha. And she started cackling. By that time, and I was about, I think I was 21, maybe 22. Um, by that time, I had realized and come to terms with the fact that if the people I dated could not handle my mother, they probably couldn't handle me. It was, she was kind of like a litmus test. Now, granted, I was never as outrageous as mom ever, not in my wildest dreams, but she instilled upon us just a boldness. We just, we just didn't turn out timid. We just, none of us became timid people. And I think it's because, again, of her outrageousness that led to so many embarrassing moments for us. And that's how we kind of developed this thing that we have, just being super frank, uh, all of us, super frank and able to laugh, not only at funny things, but at ourselves. This ability to laugh at oneself, to understand that something's embarrassing, but work through it. Uh, I think our, our super strengths that my mom passed on. And let me talk a little bit about that in terms of being a trial lawyer. Nothing's ever per 
perfect in the practice of law, especially when you're in trial. Oh my gosh, so many things happen that you didn't intend. So many things happen that could be embarrassing. So many things happen that you may want to just go and hide, but you can't. You're in trial. You got to go get through it. You got to work through it. And the juries are watching you the whole time. So I'll, I'll tell you an example of this. We uh, were in trial, COVID trial, uh, October of 2020. And I had called a witness that I thought was going to be great. The witness wanted to be helpful. But I don't know what had happened to the witness. The witness had come up with their own idea of how they could be helpful. And it was about as unhelpful as a witness could possibly be. Let me be more specific. The plaintiff had been burned over 80% of his body. And the question was if they were second or third degree burns. And the question was with, if they were that level, because if you have a third degree burn, then you're normally insensate. At least a good part of you is by the time you're third degree, you, your nerves have been burned. You don't have nerve pain. But if you're second degree burn or on your way to becoming a third degree burn, then you have all the glorious, horrible sensations of knowing that you are burning. So this is a chemical case, and this person was an EMT, and they were there at the scene. And I just don't even know what happened, but he started talking about, well, no, the guy, you know, no, this person this plaintiff, yes, he was terribly injured, terribly in pain. It was third degree. How did he know it was third degree? So there I am crossing, examining who should be a very favorable witness. And he's doing a terrible job. I don't know what he's doing. He's acting like he's a doctor. He's getting it wrong. He's talking about third degree burns. And we know for a fact that most of these were second degree burns on their way to becoming third degree burns. Because pain and suffering is what we're measuring. And so if you're not suffering and you're not having pain, then that definitely changes the value of a case. So as he's sitting there testifying and things are just getting worse and worse, I had two feelings. One was, oh no, this is horrible. And two is embarrassment. I was in charge of getting this damages witness to do the, you know, a great, great testimony. And it sucked. And I couldn't go hide under the table. I had to sit there with a smile plastic on my face, shaking and agreeing and just um, urging him to continue to tell such wonderful truths to the jury. And the defense had to believe that I was just enamored of the witness and not see me just cracking inside. This is another byproduct of being embarrassed and humiliated so many times growing up by my mom is that we really grew these kind of nice outer shells that you can put up nice placid. I call it my grandpa gong gong's concrete face on semi smile and, uh, or yoga con facade, another way I call it. And just look like everything is so awesome. I am so awesome. Well, all inside, you just want to go hide and never come out. So I'm listening to this testimony, cringing, so embarrassed. Ray, I can see Ray looking at at me like, shut him up. Uh, and all I can do is just think, oh my God, this has got to be over and start moving through it and get it done. 
When you are embarrassed like that, okay, first of all, you can't really make fun of yourself. It's not funny, but you have got to be resilient so that you can put it away and move on to the next big thing that's coming down, which is going to be immediate. And that's what I did there. No one knew how embarrassed I was. It was horrible, totally embarrassed, tucked it away, sinking fit, uh, you know, fit in my stomach, tuck it away and then buckle up and keep on going. And then maybe sob over it later that evening, not sob, but you know, mourn, mourn that episode before putting it away, shelving it for that so that it doesn't interfere with your ability to keep going. This is just part of being a trial lawyer. Another way that being able to deal with embarrassment is good besides hiding the fact that it's happening is to actually embrace it and let it be seen that you're embarrassed, but are getting over it or are just accepting the fact that you did something stupid. I have done this on almost every single trial I've ever had. I've had one of those moments. They range from calling the parties by the wrong names to tripping and almost killing myself over all the extension cords that are sometimes necessary because, for example, in King County Superior, you have one outlet and you have to do everything with extension cords to, you know, dropping this or saying something backwards or, you know, there's always something that goes wrong in trial. There's always an embarrassing moment especially if you don't keep a script and read everything, which is the most boring way to do a trial ever in the history of the world. The jurors like it when I flub. They, they always have. They like it not just because of the flub, but they want to see what I'm going to do about it. It's not a matter of, oh, is she going to screw up? It's a matter of when you screw up, then what? That's the fun part. That's the part that connects you to other people. That's the part that lets you show your humanity. And if you want to call it humility, you can. But for me, it's just not being stuck up, um, being able to just say, hey, I am human, just like everyone else. I can get stuff right. And I can flub stuff. The important thing is that I'm going to keep on going. I think that when we coddle each other too much, when we expect too much perfection, when we're not critical enough, I mean, it's better to be critical in a positive way than a negative way, but still to subject ourselves, even when young, to situations that we can make mistakes in. If we are always sheltered and don't know how to fall, then it's too hard to get back up on our own. Getting back up on our own and keeping on going is such an important characteristic of a trial lawyer, is, as is having a sense of humor and being able to laugh at oneself. So as I sit here on the fifth anniversary of my mother's passing, I thank her again for the gifts that she gave her children of embarrassment 
Because through that embarrassment, that chagrin, that overwhelming feeling of why did I have to be born into a family with a mother like this who just embarrasses and shames us all the time, the, the angst of a teenager. The gift that she gave us was one of resilience, not being scared of embarrassment. And an understanding that, in fact, it is a natural bodily function. Over and out.